Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, the Mosquito Beaters are celebrating their 25th anniversary of gathering to discuss the old days in Florida. We later got to define that anybody was a mosquito beater if they didn't put in to tell us how they'd done it back home when we would have the gathered. <laughs> Long before Gloria Estefan built a luxury hotel in Vero Beach, it was the site of Taylortown. There was nothing across the street from Taylortown. It was just palmettos. And we'll visit the Dudley Farm in North Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Little vampires, they're looking for skin. If you're out after dark, well, you ain't gonna win. They suck blood and they drink like a drain. Their whole life is meant to inflict pain. Citronella, it don't work. The only thing I know is that my neck hurts from these mosquito bites and bruises I've been slapping at night and day. There's one on my arm and two on my leg The afternoon rain has just hatched more eggs The skeeters got radar coming in low Next victim is my poor pinky toe Oh, positive, negative B Oh, man, they got an artery Well, these mosquito bites and bruises I've been slapping at them night and day Every March, about 1,000 people meet in central Brevard County to attend the Mosquito Beaters' annual gathering. There are no formal talks or academic panel discussions, just a large group of friends and family coming together to remember old times and talk about the way it used to be in central Florida. George Speedy Harrell started the Mosquito Beaters in 1986, and 2010 marks the group's 25th anniversary. The growth in Florida has been tremendous all over the state. The coastline's more, and then you add the space center in this area. It was tremendous, and there were a lot of people that still lived here, but there was we had been polluted, <laughs> and I thought it would be great if we had one day that we got together, and not at a funeral or a wedding or anything that way. So I... Uh, my daughter, was Wanda Spear, was running the Kiwanis Hall out on Peachtree Street, and I got a room there, and we typed up a, a letter that we were going to have a meeting to see if such a thing would be feasible. The room was supposed to accommodate 60 people. We had 100 show up, and they wanted to get something started right away. Yeah, I'm getting dressed for work one morning, and my dad calls, and he goes, what are you doing? I said, getting ready for work. 
We'll call in sick. I've thought of a project and your mama's cussing and I know you'll do it. Wanda Harrell-Spear is Speedy Harrell's daughter and has helped him to organize the Mosquito Beaters gatherings for 25 years. So I went by their house and said, what? What do you need? And he said, I want to do an event where people can come, see each other. I'm tired of going to funerals and that's the only time I see people. So I was managing the old tiger den uh, under the water tower at uh, US-1 and it was uh, had plenty of meeting rooms and everything so I said well we can put something together and see if anybody shows up and it just was huge and it started growing since then so I've done their newsletter since then and I try to keep the database up to speed and help them with any and everything that needs to be done and so I have been an integral part of mosquito beaters since the beginning, even though I keep telling them I wasn't even born until 1953. I shouldn't be doing all this work. <laughs> the mosquito beaters took their name from a device made from palm fronds that is used to brush away mosquitoes. Mosquito beaters were very popular prior to World War II before DDT was used as an insecticide. Speedy Harrell. I don't know how many liars you have talked to that tells how bad mosquitoes were were but they were worse than that <laughs> and we uh, fought them with a palm frond and we, the stores sold what we called smudge powder it was a some kind of insecticide that was in uh, and it would smolder and it gave off a scent that the mosquitoes would leave and then you had a, a little spray gun that you could spray with a flit, what is the name of one of them. It was a, a, a constant battle. It, the, uh, I've had to beat mosquitoes off my mother, hang out the clothes, my brother milk a cow. <laughs> mosquitoes was a terrible problem prior to the DDT. They were on the shady side of the house, they would be worse than they would on the sunny side. But on the shady side, you could go to the screen wire that was over the window. There was no air conditioning, so we had to have uh, natural breeze come. But you could put your hand on the on this screen wire and hold it there just a, just a little bit and move it away, and there was a complete outline of your hand where the mosquitoes had come to to bite on you. Charlie LaRoche is a founding member of the Mosquito Beaters. Mosquitoes were really bad and, and you had the brush at the front door to, to keep them from coming in the house and, and you had the little spray can that you went around uh, with a hand pump type thing, completely different from the aerosol cans today. And uh, then you wore long sleeves and but they were bad. Then uh, <clears throat> during the war, uh, Banana River Naval Air Station, uh, the spray pilot for the base lived right in Merritt Park. And he sprayed an area <clears throat> two miles around where he lived. And I lived within that area. So there was a period of time there around my house we didn't have mosquitoes. But uh, they were pretty thick, but you learned to live with it.
Prior to 1950, there were many more mosquitoes in central Brevard County than people. In 1948, the Banana River Naval Air Station was converted to Patrick Air Force Base, and in 1949, President Harry Truman established a long-range proving ground for missiles at Cape Canaveral. By 1959, NASA was launching lunar probes from Brevard County. In 1950, the population of Brevard County was only 23,000, but by 1960, the population had exploded by more than 371 percent. When Speedy Harrell graduated from high school in 1945, there were 33 people in his class. He says that everyone in the county knew each other and that everyone would gather in downtown Cocoa Village. Most of the work that went on was in the groves or the fishing industry. That there was there was other jobs, but that was the, the uh, bulk of the jobs was the grove or citrus or fishing. And prior to the space center, or prior to Banana River coming in during World War II or the beginning of World War II, the people would work uh, five and a half days a week Though Saturday was the half day, then in Saturday afternoon they would come to town. And that's when they got the local gossip that they would stay in town all afternoon and gather in front of the stores if it was wintertime, mostly warm, but the mosquitoes were not so bad. And the stores would have that smudge powder that I talked about burning in the stores and that uh, would keep the mosquitoes back away. <laughs> well, I'm a small-town boy. This was a small town. Chuck Reed is also a longtime member of the Mosquito Beaters. And the conditions and problems of the world at large today seem to me to be hopefully improved by personal communication and understanding. And It's kind of hard to fool people in your own hometown. You can go off somewhere and make a bunch of money and come back home and be a big shot, but... Uh, you're no bigger shot to the people who really know you than you started out. And, and that kind of, I think they like to call that transparency in government today. Well, that kind of transparency in society is a benefit because uh, peers learn from peers and peers influence peers of the same age and group. And I think if people have some commonality, uh, not necessarily equality, but if they have some commonality and work to, uh, to, to improve their position with respect for their neighbors and friends' position, that's a positive contribution to hopefully a better world. And a better world is what uh, is necessary for us to enjoy and something worth working for. To me, one of the great uh, philosophers of the day is Garrison Keillor in the Prairie Home Companion because he speaks perhaps somewhat alliteratively, but he speaks to the heart of anybody that was ever a small town, small town boy. And, and I don't think that's bad. I think that being, being raised in a place where all the neighbor's eyeballs are on you uh, is perhaps a positive influence in the long run. When the Mosquito Beaters first organized 25 years ago, they invited into their membership people who had lived in Brevard County prior to 1950. As Speedy Harrell explains, they have since expanded their membership to include anyone interested in local history and culture. Well, when we first started, we said before 1950 had lived here, so that kind of gave it the definition. But if we stayed with that before 1950, they'd all be dead but me, and I'd be there talking to myself. <laughs> but 
we later got to define that anybody was a mosquito beater if they didn't put in to tell us how they'd done it back home when we would have the gather. <laughs> we want our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren to appreciate this place as much as we have. And every mosquito beater loves Central Boulevard County. And there's a lot here to love. And we want, we want everybody else to appreciate it as much as, as we have all of our lives. June Geiger has been attending mosquito beater gatherings from the beginning and enjoys reminiscing with old friends. And you get to take pictures. I have a picture of, of two girls that I played high school basketball with and just made a few years ago. And, and it means everything to me because, it, you know, you just look at that picture and it brings back everything. Local high schools have started planning their reunions around the Mosquito Beater gatherings in March because they are such popular events. Speedy Harrell says the Mosquito Beater gatherings bring old friends and family members together. There has been several occasions that one person would come to it and I would see them enjoy themselves enough to pay me for what work I've done on the thing. Uh, there was one year there was a man that lived near Atlanta, one that lived near Tampa, and the two had grown up here. Of course, they went in the military when they became of age and had a military tour, and then they went their way of life, and that's where they wound up, one in Atlanta, one in Tampa. So the one in, near Tampa had been coming to the mosquito beaters. The one in Atlanta heard about it and he came and he got to this group and he said, I'm here, but I don't know anyone here. I said, yes, you know all these people. I said, that's Rufus Stewart going walking away from us there. And he said, I guess I did know him. My uh, mother married his father. <laughs> no, the other way around. But anyway, I think that was in 1999, and those two people had not seen one another since 1945. So that, that was kind of good to me. Then we had another occasion that there was uh, three boys in the family, and they were on outs with one another. They were not going to talk to him. One of them lived here in Cocoa, one lived in Orlando, and one lived in California. So the one here was coming to Mosquito Beaters. The one in California came to it a year or two, but the one in Orlando hadn't been here. So finally the one from Orlando called his brother in Orlando and said, if I can come from California to be there, surely you can come from Orlando to be there. So they got together at the mosquito beaters. The one from California went back California and died after that. So I, I felt good about them getting together. And there, there's just event after event that happens that way. The 25th annual Mosquito Beaters Gathering will be held in March. For more information, call the Library of Florida History at 321-690-1971. Well, that familiar buzz can only mean one thing. 
Any second I'll feel the sting of those mosquito bites and bruises I've been slapping at night and day Oh, I've been slapping at them night and day I've been slapping at them night and day This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find the latest books about Florida history and culture, find out about upcoming special events, listen to archived editions of this program, become a member of the Florida Historical Society, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Singer Gloria Estefan has built a luxury hotel in Vero Beach. As Janie Gould reports, that hotel is on the site of what used to be called Taylortown. Seven decades before Gloria Estefan built her $50 million oceanfront hotel in Vero Beach, a local businessman bought the same land for taxes. It was in the early years of the Great Depression. S.B. Taylor built four beach cottages and a bathhouse, and he named the place Taylortown. Mary Young Johnson of Vero Beach is his daughter. There was nothing across the street from Taylortown. It was just Palmettos. And that's Ocean Drive we're talking about, Central Beach District. Yeah, across Ocean Drive, which was not much of a road, just shell road. There were no shops of any kind. You could get an ice cream cone up at the um, Ocean Grill, which was called something else then. The Bucket of Blood is what we called it, and I don't know why. Taylortown was home to Navy officers stationed in Vero Beach during World War II. After the war, Mary Johnson and her late husband, Jim Young, would live in one of the cottages for a month each summer. While Young worked in town during the day, Mary enjoyed the beach and the cottage with their son, also named Jim. He was just a little fellow then. He was only about four or five. I can still remember sitting and reading to him in the living room. We had the cottage right up on the beach. There were two of them on the beach and two of them sort of halfway behind. They still could see the ocean. When you say on the beach, they were right next to the dune. Right, yes. Well, practically on top of the dune. And then there was one right behind me that was rented, but the other two were vacant. In the summertime, there weren't too many people came to Vero Beach. In fact, there weren't a whole lot of people came to Vero Beach in the wintertime just for fun. I mean, it wasn't a big tourist place. That developed rather rapidly, though. 
<laughs> that did change. Yes, it changed. So what happened to Taylortown? I can't remember the exact time, but it must have been the early 50s, late 40s. Daddy added a swimming pool, for one thing, and then he built a two-story motel partway on Ocean Drive and went partway back toward the beach. The Seahorse Inn became a landmark in Vero's growing Central Beach. S.B. Taylor hired a couple to run the hotel where the amenities were simple or non-existent. There were no telephones, no TVs, and they used to have cookouts, and they just made everybody very comfortable. And people came to get away. It was very successful, winter and summer. After 21 years, the couple managing the Seahorse Inn decided to retire, and things changed. S.B. Taylor had died, and his widow eventually sold the property to a motel chain. They just leveled the property. They tore down everything and rebuilt. The cottages and everything, Mm -hmm. gone. Everything. Later, the site became home to the Palm Court Hotel, but it was severely damaged by hurricanes in 2004. Gloria and Emilio Estefan bought the property, and last year they opened the luxury hotel, the Costa de Este Beach Resort. S.B. Taylor would not be the least bit surprised to see what the Taylortown site has become. His daughter is sure of that. He knew the minute he came to Vero Beach that he should buy oceanfront property, that it was someday going to be very valuable. So he was very prescient. He had a feeling about the future of the community. Well, I was born in Atlantic City on the shore of New Jersey, and he'd always been aware that beachfront property is very valuable. If it's not valuable right this minute, it's going to be. He bought what he was able to. He did have $500. That was a lot of money then. Down on the, the property just north of what is now the Holiday Inn, but he couldn't come up with the money to buy it, but he wanted it. So, no, Daddy would not be surprised at what's there now. Any traces of Taylortown remaining? No, no, nothing. Absolutely nothing. Mary Young Johnson, a musician and former church organist in Vero Beach, is 96. She plays bridge six days a week. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. While some people have a romantic notion of getting back to the land, almost anyone who grew up on a working farm remembers it as being very hard work. Bill Dudley takes us to an authentic pioneer farm where the goal is to educate Floridians about a way of life long past. People had time to enjoy each other, and we would maybe eat supper with a neighbor one week, and the next week they would come and eat with us. It it was a wonderful life. You had time to visit and to appreciate your neighbors. Jean Ryan remembers growing up in rural North Florida. On this December afternoon, she and several hundred others are gathered a few miles west of Gainesville at a -a one-of-a-kind Florida farm with its croplands, gardens, fruit trees, and the original 19th century buildings made from the wood of long-leaf pines cut to clear the land. Here, three generations of one family lived and died. It was established before the Civil War by Captain P.B.H. Dudley about 1859 was a land grant. So the grandfather established the farm and his son carried it on and put together the farm that you see here today. The Park Service acquired the Dudley Farm in the 1980s, and although Sally Morrison's official title is Park Ranger, she's worked here for over a decade as a historian, a researcher, and an interpreter. 
but what was once open farmland today is rapidly being absorbed by Gainesville's sprawling western suburbs. Today we have 330 of the original acres, which gives us enough to really support a farm and to provide buffers from the modern encroachment. We'll soon be a little island in the middle of suburbia, and so it's even more important that the traditions and the early culture of Florida carries on as it's being destroyed and lost. This is a special day on the farm. It's the yearly sugar cane grinding celebration. There'll be a pie auction, a community dinner under the oak trees, and all-day demonstrations of activities largely unknown to modern-day Floridians. The juice squeezed from the sugarcane stalks by this mule-powered cane grinder is poured into a 60-gallon iron cauldron presided over by neighbor Hubert Davis. We put this in here and you notice we're firing it up pretty heavy and uh, the impurities in the juice will come to the top and we'll skim it all off and, and when we get all of that off and get it clean then we'll fire it up real heavy and start boiling it. That way you're boiling the, the moisture out of it. And it takes about four hours. Twenty years ago Davis began reviving the practice of grinding cane for syrup. Now he's teaching his craft to his grandson. It's all done, as he puts it, simply to keep an old tradition from dying. As long as I can remember, people would gather together on Thanksgiving and different days and, and have a cane grinding and a eat out and just, just have a big time. It was a kind of a socializing thing, you know, where everybody got together and socialized and, and enjoyed it. Nearby, Les Jacobson demonstrates the art of shaving cypress shakes for roofing, another example of a set of skills and knowledge that may soon be extinct. When the water run down, see all these little grooves? The water would run down these grooves instead of running over to the sides and getting up under here. Much of the information about the daily workings of the farm came from the last of the family's third generation, Miss Myrtle Dudley, who died in 1994. Sally Morrison spent 10 years talking to Miss Myrtle, collecting stories and documenting farm ways. She was born on this farm in 1901. She lived here all her life and died on the farm in the same room where she was born. And the continuity is an issue here, the continuity of, of living in one place for so long and knowing it so intimately and the, the knowledge and the wisdom that comes from that. The sense of community that's established by people coming and, and being a part. You see the little boy and the grandfather with a cross-cut saw. The older man is teaching the younger. Most children don't even think about the things that they buy at the store, the possibility of them being handmade. Making syrup is a tradition that's long been a part of Florida, and the man who's making it today, he has four generations of his family, and then it brings together a community of people like this. I used to come home from school, instead of being able to go out and play, I had to get on the horse and ride it over to where my dad was and go to work while I went by the other kids playing baseball and things. Like 81-year-old family member Harvey Garland, most rural Floridians remember farming as a life of long hours and hard work. Sally Morrison hopes visitors will be able to appreciate the values of the farming culture of Florida. I'd say we're carrying them on, the traditions and the values of early pioneers. They uh, had to survive, so they learned about sustainability and learned to be thrifty. Well, I think it's important for the young people to know about it from the standpoint, I, you know, it's just I think if you grew up on a farm, that's the best thing that could happen to you.
I think this is a good place to start, really. One more round, Carl. I'm Bill Dudley, no relation to the farm family. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. We hope you'll join us again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.